Please take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Luke's Gospel, chapter 18. Luke, chapter 18. Our text this morning will be three verses, verses 28, 29, and 30. And the events of our text here this morning are are tied very tightly to our previous text, which we considered two weeks ago. And that was the text, of course, regarding the rich young ruler of the synagogue who came to Jesus asking what he might do to inherit eternal life. In fact, in some of your translations that are in paragraph form, uh, you may be in the middle of a paragraph for our text today. Uh, the, I use the, uh, the updated... New American Standard Version here and have a paragraph marker there on verse 28, but many translations do not make such a break between verses 27 and 28. And we understand that such breaks there are are editorial. They're certainly not original. But there's a very clear chronological connection. In other words, what we're looking at today takes place in the immediate context of the rich young ruler who has come to Jesus asking what he might do to have eternal life. Um, And he goes away sad. So, it's, I think, an appropriate conclusion for us as we look at our text here today that we understand our text for today in that context. The context of this rich young ruler. This context of where this man was told by Jesus, you go and you sell everything that you have and you give to the poor and you come follow me. And he goes away sad after hearing that and the response there from the disciples. And here we pick up in verse 28. In fact, I think just for the sake of context, we'll actually begin reading the entire encounter back in verse 18, but our text will be this morning, 28 through 30. A rich ruler... A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he had heard these these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard it said, Then who can be saved? And he said, these things that are impossible with people, with men, are possible with God. In our text here, Peter said, Behold, we've left our own homes and followed you. And in fact, Matthew adds a little bit more of the detail here. What's in it for us? What do we get? And Jesus answers that in Matthew's account. We'll not add that here. In verse 29, he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife, or brothers, or parents, or children, for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come, eternal life. If I were to ask you to take the time this morning to go around this room and say, what comes to your mind if I were to ask you for a single word description of the Christian life? I'll give you a moment to think about that. I'm not going to ask you. A single word description of the Christian life. You know, for some of us, we might say, depending on the circumstances that we have been through this morning, yesterday, this past week, we might say, here's my one word description of the Christian life. It's hard. It's, it's costly. It's demanding. Or, 
Again, some of you, depending on perhaps your experience of recent days or this or even this morning. The Christian life, the single word I would use, it's it's joyful. It's it's wonderful. It's great. And I dare say that most of us at any given point in our Christian experience would decide that all these have a measure of truth to them, don't they? That we can truly identify with those occasions we've thought, you know, the Christian life is hard. It is costly. It is it's demanding. It's difficult. Very much aware of the cost of following Christ. Yet on the other side, we can identify that there are those occasions of the, that we have a sense of just the joy, of the wonder, the, the goodness and the greatness of the Christian experience. But let me ask you this, which of those two sides, and granted both of those are, are, are parts of the Christian experience, which of those two places do we tend to gravitate where do we just kind of slide to? <laughs> How many times do you find yourself just kind of gradually gravitating and sliding to joy and, and a sense of the wonder and the glory of the Christian life? Or how many times do you find yourself, in fact, Gravitating to this is hard because of the experience that we've you've gone through. It's hard to trust the Lord. It's hard to believe that His ways in my life are good and and right and perfect. Isn't it easy to speak of the good side of the Christian life? The the joy side, the pleasant side, the things that we recognize, these are the, the qualities of the Christian experience that we, that we know are true. But how many times that we can speak of the good side of the Christian life, in our, but in our mind, if not in our heart, it's followed by this word, this all-changing word, but. Oh, it's great and it's wonderful, but. And how many times that we can sink into the hard or the difficult aspects, the elements of sacrifice that are demanded in the Christian life. And we kind of get stuck there. We don't have a but. You know, as we read, for example, in the book of Ephesians, the, the but, but God. But God's grace. I suspect that we tend to gravitate, gravitate, slide to the hard side. The focus becomes there. That in fact, if we are and experiencing these times of joy and a sense of capturing the glory and the wonderful aspects of the Christian experience, it's because of the work of God's grace and that there has been some measure of deliberation in our heart. I must get there. I need to be there. But if we're left to ourselves, we're left to simply gravitate Left to simply slide, we can we can see the hard aspects of it, can't we? Well, my proposal to you this morning is that the Christian life is a life as good as it gets. And I have expressed that to you here many times before. That's not novel. But my point being that in spite of what hardships and trials and difficulties we may bear in this life, it's still as good as life can get. And that although we may have a sense of that it's, it is very costly, and I think there's just reason to consider that. We're going to look at that here this morning. We need to be reminded of the fact that God is no man's debtor. He's not a debtor to any of us. And so that we can rest assured that the gains that we experience in the Christian life far outweigh any cost, any sacrifices that we make. That's what I propose to you today. And I trust that we can 
see this assurance from our text. And I want us to consider it in three ways. First of all, the price examined. Let's look at the price. What is the price one pays to lay claim to citizenship in God's kingdom? You know, Peter's comment and his question, which is partly recorded here in Luke. Luke is brief. He gives the account there just as there in verse 28. Oh, we've left our homes and we've followed you, Jesus. What you've demanded of this rich young ruler, we've done it. And this rich young ruler, you've said he would have treasure in heaven. What do we get? We've done it. And the implication is here in Luke. Luke is just more brief in the account here. But the implication in the question here to Peter is, what's in it for us? Jesus calls this rich young ruler to sell everything, to give to the poor and to follow him. It's a great cost, isn't it? And Peter simply says, we've done that. We've paid this price. And that's consistent with the teaching of Jesus in other places as well. In fact, some places that, as we've been going through Luke here, look back with me to Luke chapter 9. Just a reminder to you of those who have journeyed with us through the gospel of Luke here for these months and years. Luke chapter 9, look at verse 23 and following. Just the language here that Jesus mentions. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, this is following Christ. If any wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And look at the language in verse 24. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake... He is the one who will save it. What's a man profit if he gains the whole world and he loses or forfeits himself? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man, will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father, the holy angels. So just the language there that Jesus uses in Luke 9, this language of denying yourself, this language of taking up a cross, this language of losing your life, It's beginning to sound expensive. It's beginning to sound costly. And then in Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, verses 26 and following. If anyone comes to me and he does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Look at the language of verse 27. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Verse 33. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his possessions. So what Jesus says to the rich young ruler is not, it's not new. It's consistent with the teachings that we see in other places. So when we examine the price, the cost that one must pay in following after Christ, how are we to interpret these demands? How should we understand these expectations that Jesus lays before those who would follow after Him? Three things I think we must consider when we think about these demands. Number one, they are not to be regarded as meritorious. In other words, it's not earning heaven by one's great personal sacrifice. That's not what's being conveyed here. That if you do this, if you make these sacrifices, you have earned your ticket to heaven. That's not what's being conveyed. It is not at all meritorious. And in fact, we understand that it could not possibly be meritorious simply because one's ability and willingness to make such a sacrifice, to comply to the demands that Jesus places upon those would-be disciples are dependent upon the Spirit's work in us. In other words, no one can nor will do this apart from the enabling grace of the Spirit of God. 
So there is no way that we can look at this and think that it's meritorious. You'll never do it. That the rich young ruler is simply the model citizen of a man who is consumed by the things of this world. He's simply a good picture of all of us apart from the grace of God. And we considered that a couple of weeks ago about the triumphs of grace that are necessary in our heart that, that we could hear such a demand and we look at that and say, I'll do it. I'll take these heavenly treasures. I will give up these earthly treasures. How is it possible? It's because grace has triumphed in the heart where we have a new value system. So there is no way that one can look at these claims these demands or expectations of Jesus and and come away with the conclusion it's meritorious. It cannot be. You cannot do this. You will not. You have no heart for it. Second thing, interpreting these demands and expectations is this. The sacrifice is of the temporary and of the earthly. The demands that He makes are for those things that are of a temporary nature at best. Those may be relationships. In the family, husbands, wives, children. They may be resources, all of your possessions. They may be security. That's what the rich young ruler had, didn't he? He had security. Man, I've got all that I need. I'm, I'm set. Fine. I come to Jesus. What do I, I need to add one more thing. I need eternal life. How do I get it? You abandon your, your misplaced security, your sense of security in your worldly possessions. And all of your confidence, all of your trust is upon Christ. So it is a sacrifice of the temporary, of the earthly things. A sacrifice even of careers, plans, ambitions. All of which can be lost in a moment of time anyway, can't they? We know these things to be true. Whether it be relationships whether it be the resources that we have, any sense of security in the resources that we have, ambitions, plans, goals, dreams, all those things can be taken. They can be snuffed out in a moment, can they not? And so, what Jesus is here is, is doing is, He's saying, listen, do not set your heart and your hopes on these things that are fleeting. They're passing away. Pastor friend of ours in Middle Tennessee, the pastor of the church I grew up in, uh, is in his living room over the couch. I think it was over the couch. Anyway, somewhere living on the wall. His wife has uh, a little thing that she embroidered, and it just has the words, passing away. Boy, I just think we need that, don't we, in our homes. Just to be reminded that all that we have, the best that we have, we'll look for, it is passing away. Don't put your hope in these temporary things. Don't make this your life. Don't make this your goal and your dreams. So we see it cannot be meritorious. Second, we see that it's simply a call, a sacrifice of that which is temporary and earthly. That which you're going to lose anyway. But it's also... We must interpret these demands and expectations in light of what they call us to. And that is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ becomes supreme. He is supreme in all of your affections, in all of your relationships. That Jesus Christ is more precious to you than husbands and wives and children and family and friends and jobs and careers and security. He is worthy of all of that. That there will be no love before Christ because He is God. And if there is a love before Christ, you are an idolater. And so He's stripping away all these things that we would trust in and look to. Jesus is worthy of all this. He is worthy of your absolute trust and confidence. You can trust Jesus for the needs of your life. You can trust Him to meet you. In the crises of your heart. And Jesus is worthy of all your obedience. Which is what it came down to the rich young ruler, wasn't it? Here's the Lord Jesus. Here is God Himself saying, here's what you must do. Go sell all that you have. 
Give to the poor. You have treasures in heaven. Come follow me. So he came looking for eternal life. He received financial advice and he rejected it. He rejected the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Who has the right to call us to surrender all that he would. Love of relationships, reputation, love of comfort, security and resources. All potential idols of these hearts. And so Jesus addressed the idols of the heart. Whatever replaces God in the heart must go. So that's what he's calling here. He's calling them to see the supremacy of himself. To come and to follow after Jesus Christ and say, that is enough. So therefore, when we think about this price, this cost, these demands and these expectations that Jesus gives, what they in fact are, they serve as gracious warnings to us. Do not be deceived by the apparent value and the importance of that which is passing away. Don't be fooled. Don't live your life as a fool. Living for those things that will be gone. So in light of that... Certainly the words of Jim Elliot ring very true, don't they? That no man is a fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You know, one of the men in Scripture that we realize paid a very high price for following Christ is the Apostle Paul. But Paul got to a place and he writes for us, doesn't he? As he gives his evaluation, his estimation of the price, of what he has, what it has cost him to follow Christ. And we see it in the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 3. He says, those things that I had that are, that are losses to me, I don't have any more. Here's how I regard them. They're rubbish. Because... I have Christ. And He far exceeds any sacrifice I have made. He makes it well worth it. And the writer of Hebrews, speaking of Moses, he said that Moses, and there was a man who who had the world at his fingertips as a ruler of Egypt. And the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11, verse 26, says that he considered the reproach of Christ. The reproach of Christ as greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. That's quite a perspective, isn't it? The reproach. The shame that comes with being identified with Christ, which comes comes with being identified with the people of God, he regarded that as a greater treasure than all the treasures of Egypt. Greater riches. So what do we see here? We need to see that when we examine the price and we see these demands and expectations that Jesus speaks of, that we need to maintain simply a biblical view. To see things as Christ presents them. To see things as the scripture presents to us. That is, it will cost me, in fact, everything to follow Christ. But comparatively speaking, in light of what I gain, in light of the fact that I gain Christ himself, the cost is, in fact, nothing. Or can we say that? To cost me everything is really to cost me nothing because of what I gain in him. Losing only what I could not keep that I might gain so much more, which I cannot lose. So as to live by a renewed value system and 
as a result of regeneration, as a result of the work of God in our hearts so that we can examine the prize and we can seize the man and say yes, and we can even say of our own Christian experience, I understand the cost that was, in, that was entailed in coming to Christ. And there was a cost. There were sacrifices. I understand that. But it pales in comparison to the goodness, to the grace that is given to me, to what I have received in Christ Himself. How do you compare the two? How do you do that? So the believer is, to be, we're to be those that are so captivated by Christ that we can look at these demands and say, I'll do that. I'll do that. I'll forfeit whatever God calls for me to forfeit, whatever Christ me to forfeit, that I might gain Christ. I'll do that. So if we examine the price, we find that the cost is not what it may appear on the surface to be. And the cost is certainly to the regenerate heart. Not what it appears to the heart that is still outside grace. A man outside grace can only see this is too much. But a heart that's been regenerate, a heart in which the Spirit of God has, has done that work, he sees the cost and he says, Christ is worth all that. But what else do we see? What other assurances do we have that our gains far outweigh any cost? That is the present experience. The present experience. Let me ask you. Is an exchange for the exchange of the temporary for that which is eternal of any real benefit to us now? Or is every benefit of the Christian commitment, of the Christian life, it's when it's on deferment, you know, it's deferred until death and eternity? You know, we have something, I think, in the minds of people, kind of a strange view of Christianity. And I confess, I don't hold to this view, but I do confess, I at times gravitate to it. (laughs) And it's something along the lines of, think back to that point of when you were converted. That point when you knew Christ was all all and all and it didn't matter about anything else. You know, when the cost of following Christ seems so small. A satisfaction with Him, a joy of knowing that you have Christ. A joy of knowing that you are forgiven, that you have peace with God. And we can trust in some measure, look back to somewhere in your life, you know, that was true. Boy, I mean, I was just... So a heart so inflamed with a passion and a love of gratitude to Christ and to God for His work of grace and His salvation. And then we have a picture of, of what it's going to be like in heaven. And in heaven, you know, as we read there in Revelation, it's going to be a glorious experience. But what's going to be the glory of heaven? It's going to be the presence of God. And that Christ is going to be all in all. We're going to be a worshiping at the, at the throne of God, the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be there, are all in all. So we have this, I think practically speaking, in our minds such a time that we have this beginning point of Christianity. Christ is everything. He's sufficient. The end point in heaven, Christ is everything, and He's sufficient. But this life here in between, He is not enough. Anybody want to argue with that from your experience? I can, no, I can't count. I could begin to tell you the times in my present day living experience between the point of conversion and a joy in Christ, the anticipation of heaven, joy in Christ. And I look at my life and to be honest with you, my, my attitude and my words convey Christ is not enough. He's not sufficient for me now. I want Christ, but I want this and this and this and this and this. And by George, I'll get it or I'm going to be mad at the world. 
We live there, don't we? We've got it mapped out. Give me Jesus and my list of six other things I've got to have to have any measure of joy in my Christian experience. And for that heart, Christ is not enough. Folks, I've been there this week. You don't tell me you don't fight these battles. What's your list look out like? You know, what have you laid out? Here are my expectations. And God is not needing it. He's not enough. The benefits received at the time of death, is that what it's all about? Jesus' answer is no. It's not all about enduring now and getting to heaven. At least not exclusively. And Jesus answers Peter here. And when he Jesus, Peter just question in verse 28. Jesus says in 29, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God. Verse 30, who will not receive many times as much. Here it is. Here it is. We gloss over it. Here it is. At this time. There it is. Jesus brings the benefits, at least in measure, the benefits of Christianity to the present day experience. Whatever losses are incurred in this life, whatever trials I endure, they are surpassed by the present gains. If I've lost something, Jesus says right here, you've got much more at this time, many times more given to you than has ever been taken from you. What is true for the believer now? What's true for us now? You know, these are not new. Let's think about just a few things. Talked about this this Sunday in Sunday school this morning with the children, this word justification. Having been justified, that's ours now. To be declared righteous by God. And this morning, just with the children, just explaining the the two sides of what takes place in, in justification. That God takes my guilt and my sin and He places it upon Christ. That's half of it. But the other half is that all the merits, all the perfections, all the righteousness of Christ, He places upon me. And so He looks... And still as a just judge looks to the sinner here and he says, not guilty. Not because there's not sin, but because the demands of that sin have been meted upon another, Jesus Christ. He is a just judge in doing so. Sins forgiven now. Peace with God, you who were once alienated, we have been reconciled, is the word the Scripture uses. Reconciled. Those who were once at odds, those who once stood in opposition to God, reconciled to God. Adopted by God. Adopted as the children of God. That is yours now. You are a child of God. Fellowship with God. That God just hasn't cleaned me up and sit me out. He walks with us. He keeps us. He directs us. He calls us to communion with Him. Fellowship with God is ours now. Union with Christ. So that the merits of Christ are seen on me. Holy Spirit, guidance, wisdom, comfort. These things are all ours right now. And there are such things as that are revealed to us as the children of God revealed to us in the Scriptures that we have understanding regarding who God is and what God is doing. It's revealed to us in the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit gives us understanding as we go to the Scriptures. We understand 
about sin. We understand about suffering. And we understand our purpose. What God has done. Why God's put us here. What's going on. And even as simply as it may be in here in the text. You've left a wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God. I give thanks for what God has given to me simply in terms of brothers and sisters in Christ. I've not had to forsake house, wife, brothers, and parents. It doesn't cost me that to follow Christ. Those they weren't those that had an animosity toward the gospel. But in some sense, there has been a pardon of ways with some. But what God has given to me, and brothers and sisters in Christ, so much more than I've given, than I've lost. So the Christian life, and what I would term as the most difficult of circumstances, is a better life than an unbeliever who might be in the best of circumstances. Speaking of earthly things. You know, he's got everything he wants. You know, he's got a beautiful family, great home, three cars in the garage, a swimming pool, good job, securities, retirement, got it all mapped out there. Life's great. And I'll say the life that our brothers and sisters that we experience, that we don't have those things, our brothers and sisters in Iran today, is better. It's better. Because those who are outside Christ are still forced to try to make sense of a fallen world that is filled with sin, that is filled with suffering. And they either come to faulty conclusions based upon their own experience or that some just simply become cynical. There's no sense to it at all. There is no purpose. There is no aim. There is no goal. There's no God. You know, Proverbs thirteen fifteen tells us this. The way of the treacherous is hard. Don't we sometimes think it's the opposite? Oh, it's the way of the believer. It's hard. And we just need to think biblically, don't we? The way of the treacherous. It's a hard life. It's a hard life. You give yourself to something and apart from Christ and get the end of it. What have you got? Nothing. We hear of our persecuted brethren, our brothers and sisters that we pray for every week. The pain and the suffering that they endure, how great it is, the cost that it is for them to follow Christ. And if, in many other cases, if they would just simply keep their mouth shut. Just don't say anything. Don't talk about Jesus in a Muslim country then life could be a whole lot easier. And you know what they say? We can't. We can't be quiet. We've got to tell our fellow countrymen about Jesus Christ. We want them to know. We want them to come to Christ. And so in places where conversions, places where trying to call to get someone to come to your religion is illegal, they keep doing it. Because they've not measured their life by what they have in this world. They've measured the the value of their life in Christ. And the value of the life of those people they see every day is whether or not they know Christ. That's all that matters. So Christ is, in a very real sense, enough. Psalm 73, a very familiar psalm that we've considered before and read. There we have the the writer who is struggling with 
with hardship. He's, he's described himself, I was almost fallen, almost consumed as he looks out and he sees the prosperity of those who are evil and those who are wicked and how nothing seems to happen to them. And then he looks at his own situation and, you know, just nothing seems to go good for him. It's, everything's hard. And then he says in that chapter, I think in verse 17 or 18, there he speaks of, until I entered the sanctuary. Then I knew. Then I knew. It's when I came before God and I had my worldly perspective changed and refreshed to see things as God would have me to see. I saw this is what's happening here. And then Psalm 37, verses 1 through 11, there, the, uh, the writer just calls us not to fret because of evildoers. You can say, well, wait a minute, these are not pointing to present day experience. These are all pointing to the future because you know, it talks about their feet being in slippery places and yet we are sure to be with God. That's all pointing to the future. How does that help me in my present day experience? Simply this they are assurance that we might have present day peace. Present day peace. And rest. We need that now. And part of the living in the present is knowing. Is having the assurance that that the trials of my daily experience are for a purpose. They are they brought to me by the hands of a loving Father. That the world's just not attacking me. That is God at work. And that there is the hope that there will be a day of justice. But that is a hope to bring peace and assurance now. See, we have many benefits in this life for which to be thankful as a people of God. You know, God has not stuck us in a holding pattern and joy and satisfaction in our life is deferred until death. We have as the privilege of our hearts now and our Christian experience now to delight ourselves in the Lord, to enjoy our God, to bless Him, to thank Him, to glory in Him, to reflect His image in the context of the church and in our homes and our communities. Sounds good, doesn't it? It's an honor to be the means whereby others are brought into the kingdom of God. That's an honor. We have so much in the way of blessing in our present day experience. And so much of the time we're consumed with the troubles of our life. And Jesus just tells us right here, it's right now. I mean, we can't, we can't bounce around this thing. Many times as much at this time. You get more now. Whatever sacrifice. What could be better than that? That's what I mean. Christianity, this is as good as it gets, folks. This is life as good as it gets right now if you're a child of God. Now, before all of you decide this life here is really good after all, I want to remind you that there is heaven. (laughs) That there is the reality that the best is yet to come. And that is the promised expectation. We do have the assurance of eternal life. And of heaven. Verse 30. Who will not receive many times as much at this time. Many times as much at this time and in the age to come. Eternal life. Well, the fact of the matter is that there's much in this world that is wrong. There is much in this world that is against God. And that God assures us, I have something for you. As much as I may be able to learn from my trials, I'm going to be happy today that I don't have to learn that way. I'm all for it. And that the trials come upon us because of the fallen world in which we live. 
No, there is coming a day when God, when Christ shall return and there shall be this new heaven. There shall be this new earth. The, the first things have passed away. All things have become new. What is this eternal life that Jesus speaks of here? <clears throat> Verse 30. Well, in the scriptural contrast that we find, the scripture contrast is simply with eternal destruction. These are the options. You have eternal destruction or you have eternal life. So when we speak of eternal life, what we're speaking of there is the, the ever-present, benevolent presence of God. In other words, we're always in the benevolent presence of God for all of eternity. And at least implied here that there is a deliverance from the deserved penalty of our sin, which is death. The opposite of death is life. So there's a deliverance from what we deserve. Scripture also tells us more when it speaks about eternal life. It really defines it and talks about it in terms that could be somewhat unexpected. Look in John chapter 17. John chapter 17, verse 3, here Jesus' prayer for his people, for his church. 17, 3, this is what Jesus said, this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So, present with the idea of this concept of eternal life is there's a clearer knowledge, a clear understanding of, of who God is. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been full and fully known. And then we see in 1 John chapter 3. First John chapter three, verse two, beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. So the real emphasis of eternal life is not just that there's always a tomorrow. The emphasis of eternal life is this. It's a relationship, an eternal relationship and a a fuller revelation of who God is. It's a a clear knowledge of God. And we understand that part of what's what's entailed is the completion of this work of salvation that God has begun in us. That we have, at this point, we have experienced all the benefits of of justification and and, uh, we are experiencing the process of sanctification. We have the good gifts given to us of, of adoption, of union with Christ, all those things. But we also know the work is not done. That there is a better yet to come. And that is this end of God's salvation at work in us that we call glorification. And it is better. A deliverance from the possibility of sin. Sin is no longer possible. I look forward to that. So, listen... As good as this life should be, and as good as we should understand the life that God gives to us right now in Christ, rest assured, the best is still yet to come. Because sin, once and for all, once and for all, is done away with. In Revelation 21, 22, as we read a few moments earlier, no death, no mourning, no crying, no pain, the glorious presence of God, no sin, no curse. That's as good as it gets too, isn't it? Folks, I don't buy into the mentality that says, well, the Christian sacrifices everything now because of eternity. I've, this is my mentality. We have got the best of both worlds now and then. Even though I don't always believe that now. But if I'm thinking biblically, it's true. 
I have the best of existence now simply because I'm a child of God. And then I have the guarantee that it's going to be far better when He comes. So Christianity, folks, it's as good as it gets. You say, well, wait a minute. Look at what's going on in my life. I'm willing to look at your life, but to be honest with you, I've got enough of my own sin and heartaches and troubles and trials to look at. But I either believe my experience or I believe the Scriptures. I either be dictated by what I see with my eyes or what the Scriptures teach. And God give us grace to believe what we hear, what we see in the Word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's certainly much easier for me to say that this is the best life now than it is to really believe that tomorrow and Tuesday and whatever else may come this week. But this is what you've said. And Lord, I confess that there are so many, so many idols that to me are more, more pressing than what I have in Christ. That I have so often evaluated my present existence with my eyes closed to what is mine in Christ today. And my heart filled with a love for things of the world. Oh Lord, we choose to believe you. We choose to trust you. And that whatever sacrifice or demands that we may meet, that it, in reality they, they pale in comparison. Oh, for the sufficiency of Christ. Oh Lord, that you'd be enough in our hearts today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.